Hello, everybody, and welcome to the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm one of your co-hosts, Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, uh, based out of Chicago, Illinois, sunny and cold, and about to get a lot colder here, unfortunately. Uh, with me today are my two co-hosts, uh, uh, Jim Marty, who you all know and love uh, from the beginning of time. He and I have been doing this thing. Uh, uh, Jim with the Bridge West Group, a, a top flight cannabis accountant, uh, and also with us, our newest co-host, Rob Hunt of sunny California and uh, all things good in the investment world. Uh, gentlemen, always a pleasure to have you on board. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm great, Larry. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. You know, this is a lot of fun. Um, I know we have some fun stuff set up to talk about today. And, you know, what our listeners don't know is all the fun that you and I have and, you know, Jim have uh, talking all week about what we're going to talk about on the show, exchanging shows and set lists. And, um, you know, it's really kind of taken over uh, a regular part of my week in a, uh, in a fun way. Uh, and uh, Jim Marty, how are you doing, sir? Very good. I'm here in windy Colorado. We've had some major dumps of snow up in the mountains including now we have several places that have avalanche warnings. In fact, I'm starting to report that there's uh, three missing backcountry back skiers right now. They've been missing for about three days, so their prospects do not look good. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, but it sounds like you're uh, once again on the road. You're always somewhere. Where are you this time? I'm on my way home. I was uh, seeing clients today in Boulder and Denver. Uh, cannabis world is rocking and rolling. Um Went to a cultivation that's under construction, went to a greenhouse farm that just got acquired by a publicly traded company. General Cannabis is the name of the publicly traded company. I can say that because they're publicly traded. Very nice. Well, that's always good to know. Uh, the exciting news out of Chicago is it looks like we may have uh, some sort of resolution with the uh, dispensary licenses. The people with the perfect scores uh, are going to be all put into one general lottery. Uh, and then everybody else who got an 85% or better score will be put into a second lottery of an additional 75 licenses. So the good news is they'll be coming on board with 150 new licenses. Um, you know, that'll be good for the public. May take a while for the market to catch up with all of it. Uh, but we're excited about that. If it really happens, we'll see. This is Illinois. We've been promised before. So until those licenses are issued, who knows? We'll keep our fingers crossed and hope for the best. Moving on to things that are fun to talk about and, uh, always work well, no matter when you're talking about them. Uh, today is February 3rd. Uh, of course, it's calendar year 2021. Uh, but oh, what, just about uh, 50 years ago, 40 years ago. 42. 42 years ago. Okay, well, there you go. That's that's why I'm a lawyer and not a mathematician. <laughs> February 3rd, 1979, the Grateful Dead at a pivotal moment in their career getting ready to literally close the door on the Keith Gauchow era at keyboard and raise the curtain on the Brent Midland era, not quite, but very shortly after this show, uh, within a month or two, I believe. And yet here they are with this lineup uh, that is not long for the making, and they throw down uh, what I think most people would have to be considered uh, one of the hotter shows of the 1979 year, uh, certainly a treat for a town like Indianapolis, which always seemed to get more than its fair share of hot shows, whether they were at Deer Creek uh, or there one year. Uh, guys, I even saw them in 1984 outdoors at the uh, that's where they used to have the national amateur tennis championships every year on clay courts. And they had the, the concert there and they put down tarps over the clay courts 
but uh, everything else was like being there to watch tennis. So they served these wild drinks with, you know, straws and umbrellas and everything like that. And, but we always saw great shows in Indianapolis and it was always a lot of fun, but this one's a really, really good one. Um, and I uh, uh, thank Rob for uh, being astute enough to recognize what day of the uh, year it was on the calendar and, and pulling this one out, Rob, uh, what, when you, when you, when you see the date, what makes you think of this show? Well, first of all, I mean, a lot of our listeners don't realize that we record the show a couple of days uh, before we publish it. So, you know, we might, you might be listening to this after February 3rd, but, you know, I knew that our recording date was, uh, was the 3rd of February. And I can tell you that, you know, there's a handful of shows that, you know, back before we had archive.org and back before, you know, there's this massive ability digitally to trade. Uh, oftentimes, you know, the deadheads were relegated to tape trading, which meant you're looking for the best quality soundboards you could find. And if you got some really hot uh, recordings, you know, you held on to those and probably played those tapes to death. And so in high school, for me, one of the first just like immaculate soundboards that I had was uh, was 2379 from Springfield. And my best friend in high school was just addicted to the show. So I think we went probably six months where he only had that one tape in his tape deck. To the point that you know, we thought was like fused inside there. And we probably heard that Scarlet Fire a thousand times, you know, over senior year. Uh, and not to mention, you know, the, the first side of that show, uh, just being a scorcher as well. The thing that sticks out to me about that show is it's the only time I can think of in Grateful Dead history where they played a Scarlet Fire, a China Rider and an Estimated Eyes all in the same show, which, you know, kind of is like the three classic combinations, like besides Help Slip Franklin's that, uh, that, you know, deadheads think about as, you know, typifying the, the 70s, 80s and 90s. So for that, for me, it was just um, one that anytime I hear February 3rd, my mind automatically goes to um, to Market Square Arena. Um, I would agree with that. And, you know, it's not just that they drop a China Rider, Scarlet Fire, Estimated Eyes. The Scarlet Fire Estimated Eyes is, you know, it played, started the second set. It's killer all the way through. Um, and this was right when this 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 format was just beginning, the Scarlet Fire Estimated Eyes, uh, and they play it like, you know, it, it's as fresh and new to them as it is, and it's, it's really wonderful. And it's not just that they threw the China Rider in, because, you know, as I've discovered looking back prior to 19, in fact, the first show I saw in 1982, they closed the first set with China Rider. And that was not uncommon for a long time in the 1970s for them to close the first set with China Rider. But here they dropped the China Rider into the middle of the first set. And I've never seen that. I've never seen them drop a China Rider into the middle of either set. You know, it either ended the first set every now and then, I guess they'd open a show with it. But otherwise, right, it would be a, it would be a, a, a pretty much a standard second set opener. And the fact that they chose to play it in the first set, but in the middle of the first set, uh, to me, uh, that's the part that I love. You know, you're just listening. It. It's a fairly standard, you know, Promised Land, Candyman, Mama Tried, Mexicali Blues, China Rider. <laughs> and then just as easily, boom, back to Minglewood Blues, Staggerly, you know, uh, what's, you know, the give a little Donna moment in there and, and then, you know, music never stopped. But that's a real, you know, that's one of those things that just makes you stop all of a sudden on a dime and say, what's happening here? And that's uh, that's very cool. I love that. And you always think of Promised Land as being a first set closer. You don't really think it was a first set opener. So to have Promised Land kicking out of the gate and what really makes this version um, really interesting is that the recordings that, that most people had, uh, the, the sound was really, really low for the Promised Land and for the first maybe like 30 seconds of the Candyman. 
And then all of a sudden the sound engineers get it together. And if, if you listen to the recording, it's so quiet in the arena that you can hear people speaking and you can actually hear, you know, someone in the audience just yell to the band like louder. And right as they yell louder, all of a sudden the sound peaks in. So it's like in the can demands in town and just triples and the crowd just goes nuts because it's one of those moments where like, it's like the band heard the, or the sound engineer heard the person in the crowd yelling for it to get louder and just like triples in volume. So whenever I think of that recording or I think of that night, I always think about the, uh, the, the candy man. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I had listened to the show before and, you know, I, it was just not anything I had focused on, but the minute you mentioned it to me, I went back and, and boom, sure enough, there it was. Um, Jim Marty, let me ask you, uh, because, you know, this show itself, uh, uh, you may have some comments on, but if I uh, remember correctly, uh, this is very close in time ge uh, geographically or temporarily or whatever we say in the business, uh, to when you saw your first Grateful Dead show. Is that not true? Yes, it was the same tour just a couple of weeks earlier in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, my girlfriend at the time uh, got the tickets for Christmas of 1978. Me and her and her brother, Brian, uh, went down to the show. I don't know how she did it, but she got fifth row center. I was making wow. eye contact with Jerry Garcia. And, um, That's awesome. Great show. And um, I remember how surprised um, Maureen's brother was that the guy next to us had been to 25 shows. He goes, wow, who goes to 25 concerts? We hadn't heard of the multiple concert thing at the time. But it was a wonderful show. And it, ties into what we're talking about and oh by the way that girlfriend has been my wife for 40 years now okay good nice to and, know uh, we're tying this in it um was one of the last keith and donna shows and then february 3rd they must not have had too many more keith and donna shows after february 3rd right as i recall i'm looking at it now i believe the uh, brent midland's first show with the band was sometime in april of 79 yeah. in uh, san jose april 22nd Yep, San Jose, and, and I heard a tape of that show too. And if I'm not mistaken, they opened that show with "Passenger," which was such a great song for them to come right out of the box with. He's got the the Hammond organ just wailing. It's like here I am, and boom, it, that's a great show too. You know, for this time, you know, and it, it, it's it's really an interesting time for the Grateful Dead, right? Because, I mean, they're closing out the '70s. And the 70s were such a highly productive era for them. And, you know, I think that, you know, for a lot of deadheads, 73 and 77 are probably the two holy grail years of Grateful Dead music. You know, if you don't want to count the psychedelic years of, of you know, 67 through 69 or whatever, but certainly in the 70s, you know, that ruled. And that's, you know, when the band really took off and, and, and made a name for itself. And here it was at the end of the 70s, you know, kind of trying to remain relevant in the disco era. And, uh, you know, so much changing everywhere. Keith Gauchow is leaving the band. They're bringing in this new guy. And, you know, who knew that as they, you know, kind of exploded into the 80s, that Brent and Jerry, you know, would connect, you know, the way that they did. And I think Phil was really tuned into that. And, you know, it just took them to a whole nother level throughout the 1980s as you know, long as Jerry was healthy, but uh, you know, it's, it, this was it. This was, this was that moment. You don't get a lot of those transition periods, you know, with fish, they just stop playing for three years and then come back as version 2.0 or 3.0, you know, and other than the dead's one vacation year, not really vacation, but year off or whatever in 75, um, they had always just kept playing, but this was, this was definitely a point in time when you could, you could see that difference. And, you know, it's kind of exciting because they, they, they weathered it very well and just kept rolling right along. 
Yes, my second Grateful Dead show was May 12th, 1979, um, with Brett Midland, one of his first shows at the UMass, University of Massachusetts, where we were attending college. Uh, they did a spring tour of college football stadiums, and that was a, a wonderful show. And that's when I really got hooked. Uh, great Jack Straw. And what I really remember, uh, UMass is in an agricultural area with cat, lots of cows, and the drum solo was so loud and rolling, and I'm looking out at the fields of cows, wondering, I wonder what these cows think of this drum solo. Yeah, well, so that's really kind of cool. Think about that. You, uh, Your first two shows, you saw Keith, and then you saw Brent. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't really do much better than that. That's very cool. Yep, and it was, the first show was great. The second show was when I really got it. So, so I'll go back and say sometimes, you know, your first show, you don't realize, you know, how special something you saw was because you don't you have nothing to compare it to. You've got no basis of a, a foundation. And I look at 115.79 and uh, and I think that, you know, for me, I wore that tape out to death also, uh, Jim, principally because the transition jam between the uh, the I Need a Miracle into the uh, Shakedown Street is legendary. I mean, I, I, we could do an entire show just on that four minute segue of, of, you know, Miracle in the Shakedown. If you were to ask a lot of people I know, you know, name the single greatest thing the Grateful Dead ever did, you know, as a as a transition, I think most of them would point to that moment. So at the time, you probably thought they did that every night. But, you know, just that did it, the, the, the build up and crescendo where it's like, did it, 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 into the shakedown. It's just like, it, nothing they've ever done before. And just Jerry walked up the scales and scales and scales until he just, you know, drops it along with a fill bomb into the shakedown. So, I mean, your, your first show, um, good for you. That was your first one. Yes. And like you just said, I agree with what you just said. You know, I really wasn't comprehending how special that show was. I mean, we all enjoyed it. Uh, but yeah, when it's your first Grateful Dead show, you don't know quite what to expect. You don't know what quite how to, handle all the things going on around you and on the stage and the band and the drums and the space. Um, yeah, it really is. Like you said, that second show, then you have something to compare it to. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, I got the, uh, the other transition, which is, you know, my first 14 or 15 shows were with Brent and then the rest of my, you know, time seeing the dead was with Vince. But what I will say is during that transition period, I got the greatest period of Bruce Hornsby, which is, you know, the first year of Bruce Hornsby playing with the dead while Vince was trying to figure it out. I any show where they played down the old Valley Road was a good show for me. I just love that. You know, they just walk on. Yep, they just crank that, and yep. they they did great with that. No, that was and that's funny for me too because you know, from the overwhelming majority of my shows were in the Brent era, and you know, it, I mean Vince. Although I saw you know a decent number of shows in the nineties, um, uh, you know, I I it, I always kind of thought of them as a as a Brent band, and you know, Vince was the new guy, and you know, although. You know, look, I give Vince a lot of credit. He stepped into a really tough situation. He handled it really well. And he added his own, you know, that uh, um, Baba O'Reilly, Tomorrow Never Knows Encore, was one of the best encore combinations they ever played. And that was him. He, he drove that. And that was great. Yeah, I think, I think we're probably going to spend some time uh, discussing Vince and the influence that he had with, with song selection and all the, uh, you know, what, a, what a huge Beatles fan he was and how many songs he brought. And I think we've got an episode coming up here in a, in a couple of weeks where we're going to talk about that a bit more. But, you know, Vince was certainly uh, outside of just, you know, the, the music that he brought to the band was the influence of other music that he brought that, you know, they started playing, especially a lot of cover songs. Big Steve tells a good Vince Welnick story. I guess one of the first um, times Vince Welnick uh, played with the Grateful Dead and became a member of the band 
um, after the show or when they got back to the hotel or whenever, Big Steve handed Vince his uh, show check, his check for playing the show. And he looked at it, he goes, is this for the whole tour? He had no idea that he would make that much money in a single night. I think what a lot of people don't know is that the Grateful Dead were very um, even-handed about how people got paid. You know, you'd think that when you have a new musician come into the band who hasn't been with the band for the past, you know, 30 years, that they probably would have paid him significantly less. And that wasn't the, the democracy. It was the Grateful Dead. They paid, you know, roadies uh, exceptionally well. They paid band members. They treated everyone as if they were a band member if you were actually part of that core group, which is really unique to that, that organization. Yes. Another quick big Steve, he said Jerry would say to him, especially on the Jerry Garcia band tours, you know, he'd ask big Steve, hey, did everybody get paid okay? Well, that's, and Rob, your point exactly, and, and that story, Jim, too, there's, you can go get MBAs in business management studying Grateful Dead business management theory now, you know, both in terms of how they ran their own organization internally, as well as how they marketed them themselves by, you know, letting people come in and, and tape their shows and the, you know, the, the innovations that they brought to the business world that proved to be successful that were so against the grain, we could easily spend a show just talking about that. Uh, and maybe we will, because it's, it's, you know, people want to think of them as a bunch of tripping, you know, hippies who got up on stage and played music, but these were pretty bright guys. Yeah. And, and Jim, I'm really glad you brought up big Steve's show because I, I don't know if everyone out there realizes, but this week, um, Gary Lambert and David Gans were kind enough to have me on uh, tales from the golden road and actually allowed me to plug the, uh, the deadhead cannabis hour uh, to their entire audience and actually put a, the logo for the deadhead cannabis hour up on their, on their Facebook page. So hopefully that brings you know, a new audience to us. So, you know, very, very gracious. And, and David and, and Gary, if you're listening, you know, from all of us, sincerely, thank you. And it was very gracious to, to have me on and to let me uh, discuss what we're doing over here. I mean, look, let's not kid ourselves. I mean, those guys are kind of probably, you know, the center of the deadhead universe in, t in terms of keepers of the knowledge and the culture. I mean, people tune into that show just to hear the stories that they have to tell and the, and the people who come on and, and share stories with them based on the connections that they've made. And, you know, I mean, it, it is the fact that they would, uh, you know, let you plug the show and, and put it up there. But I think that speaks to what you were just saying a second ago, Rob, which is the whole mentality that from their perspective, I don't think they look at it as competition. I think they look at it as, you know, just more extension of the Grateful Dead family and people out there, you know, spreading the good word about the Grateful Dead and uh, all the good things that they did. And for God's sakes, tying it into something as wonderful as cannabis, you can't go wrong with that. Well, they, they teased me for it. They said, yeah, that's a, you know, it's peanut butter and jelly, basically. It's the natural combination. Like, oh, Deadhead Cannabis Show, huh? Who, who came up with that, you know, brilliant idea? Uh, so, and, and on top of that, you know, uh, David Lemieux actually is really gracious on Twitter with me also when I, I mentioned that I was doing this. And David Lemieux, you know, did a couple tweets out about it as well. So, I mean, again, that just shows the generosity of, you know, the inner core of the, the Grateful Dead community of how uh, supportive they are of other people that are still trying to keep the flame alive and trying to make sure that, you know, uh, the, the music and the vibe is passed on to as many people out there as possible. And, you know, again, a big thank you to everyone that's part of that organization for how gracious they've always been uh, every time I've interacted. Yeah, no, that's, that's wonderful to hear. And of course, for our listeners who may or may not know, David Lemieux is the new Dick in the sense that uh, after Dick Latvala passed away, 
uh, David Lemieux stepped in to become the keeper of the Holy Grail or the uh, the vault, as we like to say. And uh, he's the one that plays a primary role through his Dave's Pick series of determining which shows are released from the vault. And uh, although he's tended to show a very, very heavy prevalence for the 1970s, uh, he has expanded out a bit into the 1980s now, uh, which is very exciting to see. And uh, generally speaking, I have to say that he uh, picks some pretty good shows for us to listen to. Definitely. So I'm still waiting for him to release a few more of those uh, early 79 shows that we've been talking about, because I do think that the end of that era, uh, you know, I, I know, Larry, uh, you consistently talk about the closing of the Winterland, which is only you know a month before uh, Jim's first show. But that era from like January until the Brent era started, I think personally are some of the hottest shows that the Grateful Dead ever played. I love that spring 79. I think spring 79 just has such an amazing sound as uh, so many uh, very unique characteristics where there's riffs that Garcia only played during that period that I never heard again afterwards. Well, I kind of like to think, you know, and maybe this is just me being a, you know, a wishful deadhead, but you know, they, they, that, that, that closing of the Winterland show is like the kind of show, you know, that really could have propelled them forward. I mean, that, that was such a, for the time, you know, to, to come out and play a four hour show like that and, and to play that, that screamed of early 1970s, uh, but they brought the energy and they brought, you know, all of it. And of course it was a special night and, you know, they were closing a, you know, a venerable old place that had been their home for years and years. Um, but I think they really fed off of the energy of that show. At least that's what I'd like to think. And you're right. I mean, they kind of exploded into the, uh, 1979. And, and then another part of it was the way that, that Brent really kind of seamlessly transitioned into the band there. There really wasn't a hiccup there. I mean, he was just that talented of a musician that, you know, it took him a while to find his exact footing, but he had no problem filling in the spaces in between and, you know, I, I I love listening to his B3 all of a sudden on the scene. It's just it's it's so so much energy and it's just such a, you know, a, 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 you know, a good omen of things to come that, you know, now we got this guy who who plays like Greg Allman, for God's sakes, and sings like him, too. It was very cool. Oh, I love yeah. those big keyboard riffs of his that really just, he, just, he would just take off and fly. Well, I have to tell you, on those nights when, you know, our eyes were, you know, maybe spinning counterclockwise, uh, you would always look down on the stage by the B3, right, for the big, cooler thing that the faster, the harder he played, the faster it would spin around. And we'd all look, we'd all look at that thing and we'd say, oh, man, that's spinning around fast. Brent's cranking now. And Well, that's that's the way Melvin Seals was during, like, a Mississippi Moon or a Louis, uh, um, or Lucky Old Son. You know, during those uh, organ jams, you know, you'd look on top of, uh, of Melvin's stack and you just see that thing humming. And, you know, the fast, as I said, the faster it went, the, the deeper that was. Yep. That was great stuff. I, I you know, I really, really love that. And, and uh, so much that, you know, that Brent brought to it. And, you know, we, we can spend and we will, I'm sure, spend time talking about that. You know, some of his mid-1980s stuff is just, you know, I, I liken it to uh, uh, that scene in, in the original Matrix towards the end where Neo gets shot. And then he gets up and all of a sudden he can see that, you know, everything in the... He, he can see that he's the one and he sees it all in the code or mid 1983, I think, you know, for Brent, it just kind of clicked in his head. And from that point forward, not that he, not that everything prior to that point wasn't good, but you know, he, he really came into his own and, and became a force to be reckoned with within the band was no longer the new guy. And uh, yeah, it's all, this is, this is an exciting time for the grateful dead. Yeah. <clears throat> So one of the other things that I think uh, you know we should touch on is just kind of the role that technology played in the Grateful Dead community. 
And, uh, you know, I think people forget that a lot of the things that happened, um, you know, as far as you know, multi-track recording devices and the wall of sound and other things that, you know, uh, that are standard now in recording of music and standard uh, for, for live music and the way that people fly their PA these days. A lot of that's directly attributed to the work that the Grateful Dead did in their early sound, gen sound engineers and the people that are uh, associated with it. And I also think that, you know, the tech community in general has been really attracted to the Grateful Dead specifically because there's always been that nexus between technology and sound. And, uh, you know, I, th I think that we definitely saw that with John Perry Barlow and we definitely saw that with, uh, you know, different sound engineers that they had you know, sitting in, whether it was uh, Healy or whether it was uh, Betty Cantor that there was just, you know, some terrific people that knew how to use technology to their advantage. I mean, all the way back to, to Owsley Stanley um, being a part of, you know, putting the sound together. And I think that, that I think we're seeing that today in, in kind of um, the, the way technology in, in cannabis uh, has a very similar nexus in, in watching what's happening in our space. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Larry and I have been playing around with here for the last uh, period of time is a new technology that's bringing everyone in the, both the Grateful Dead community and in the, uh, the Canvas community together, which is a platform that's called Clubhouse. And uh, Larry, I know you've had a chance to mess around with it a little bit. You know, it's, it's, it's really funny because, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but, you know, I'm old. And when it comes to, you know, all of this kind of stuff, a lot of it happens and I just don't even know that it's out there. Um, but yeah, since, uh, you turned me on to it the other day, Rob and Jim, you're next. So I figure if I can learn how to do it, you can too. Um, it's, uh, it's very cool to all of a sudden, you know, within a, a, a matter of seconds, Rob and I are talking on the phone. We hang up the next thing I know we're communicating in a room and, uh, you know, somebody pops into the room to see what's going on. Cause they like the, the title of the room. And the next thing you know, we're talking to this person and, you know, Rob, you can tell us in a minute about how you did it the other night you had, you know, ultimately as many as a thousand different people who came through to listen to what you have to say. And I think it's great. And I think it sends a wonderful message and it's a great way to, to, to communicate. But what, what really cracked me up was um, after you and I uh, stopped talking within five minutes later, all of a sudden uh, it popped up on there that uh, I noticed that my son, my oldest son is on, on uh, clubhouse. And so it gave me that notice. And two minutes later, I got a text from him. What are you doing on clubhouse? <laughs> I, you know, I wrote back and I said, you know, I'm kind of hip and cool, but then conversely, uh, last night, I you know I tried to brag about it to my 19-year-old, and he wasn't even quite sure what Clubhouse was. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's like, you know, all these other ones that they've had where, you know, you can go in and chat. That's just the next generation. These people are just trying to be hip and cool. I'm like, dude, if you don't know about it, that's okay. I beat you to it. That You know, you can, you can fess up to that. But, um, no, I think it's great. And, and look, it, people in technology are, were the deadheads and are the deadheads. And it's no surprise that, you know, the same technology, I mean, the dead, think about this. By the time Jerry Garcia died, none of this had happened. The internet was brand new. There was no cell phones of the kind we have now. There was none of this communication, right? If you wanted to find out what the dead played, you had to call 1-800-USA-DEAD and listen to the guy read through the list and pay 75 cents a minute on the phone and hope, you know, you didn't miss it while he was, reading the list because if you said you had to call in again you know we're, the fact that technology is evolving the way it does and that the people in business especially in the cannabis industry are picking it up and running with it is no surprise to me it's just you know a matter of finding it and you know thankfully uh, you're young enough and hip and cool enough to know where this stuff is and uh but i think it's great i think it's going to be a great way to both promote cannabis and for all sorts of people, musical groups, anybody with ideas to be able to promote their ideas. Yeah. So 
So I was saying the first time I ever got on the internet was after um, the uh, the Grateful Dead played uh, in Salt Lake City in the beginning of 1995, and they broke out Visions of Johanna for the first time in quite a while. And I was so captivated by the song, and I knew it was a Dylan tune, but I never really thought the, you know about what the words were until I heard Jerry sing it that night. So I actually went online for the first time to try to look up what the uh, the words were to uh, to Visions because there were certain lines in that song that I just couldn't you know couldn't put together. So that was uh, that was what got me on a computer and actually trying to find information. That's what I had to do the first because in, in uh, uh, at the Greek in '85 they played uh, a double encore. One of them was "She Belongs to Me," uh, which I had never heard before. And then "Visions of Johanna," and the best version of "Visions of Johanna" is on the album from the Phil Zone. It's a beautiful, beautiful version of "Visions of Johanna." If you're looking for one to listen to. For my birthday one year, I asked my wife to buy me a book of the Bob Dylan lyrics so I could get all the lyrics to his songs because they were playing all these Dylan songs and I wanted to be able to find out what all the lyrics were, but there was nowhere else to go. That was the only way you could do it. You know, I, it was, this was all pre any of this stuff. So that's, you know, I mean, I can, can you imagine seriously what it would have been like for the Grateful Dead to come of age during the acid tests with, you know, social media involved it would be crazy can you imagine that if social media was involved i don't think the acid test could have ever happened you know so which one drives the other i mean the the fact that certain things could only happen privately i mean whether it was you know that scene or there's like the rave scene of the late 80s or other things that were underground if there was social media they would have been so overrun because the uh, the mass dissemination of information to the masses just wouldn't have allowed for something so special like that to happen in these small like curated rooms I, I think that was social media, right? The acid tests were social media. That's what it was, that, you know, and everybody just got together kind of and boom, that's what we had. And, you know, the, it's great stuff. I really, you know, I mean, that, that, that's a particular time and era. You know, when, when, I, when I talk with my, my, my cousins and younger friends and not some older friends too, you know, with on the, you know, the Fish Grateful Dead comparison, it, the, the Grateful Dead just captured so much of what was going on in America at that particular time. And they were so much at the forefront of helping, you know, kind of shape a particular message in a particular way of life that resonated for so many people, you know, in so many ways. And, you know, the fact that they played great music certainly helped. And yeah, by the 1980s, you know, people were going to see their music, but certainly part of what gave it resonance was who they had been and, you know, what, what, what they stood for and where, you know, where they, you know, for God's sakes, they got busted for marijuana. You know, I mean, they were, they were part of the, they were part of the team. It was, it's just, it's, it's, you know, and, and for, I can say this, you know, I feel like, you know, I missed all of that, that, you know, that predated me. And, um, you know, as, as, as old as I think I am now, at least I know I'm young enough that I wasn't around, you know, at least not consciously into all of it as much at that time to really appreciate you know, the role that they were playing in helping uh, shape the direction that things were going. But, you know, they used to play concerts in St. Louis at the Fox Theater and, you know, they were told we're going to turn off the, the power and they'd say, come turn it off. We're here playing, you know, and, you know, or the, the famous stories of Bill Graham locking all the doors and saying, OK, now you're in a private party. And, you know, they just play all night. Well, Big Steve tells a story how they would they would put a, uh, their own lock on the lockbox so the cops couldn't shut them off at midnight. Right. Yep. And another quick uh, comment from me, uh, I've heard it said that uh, Grateful Dead tape trading was really the beginning of social media. Well, that too, sure. Yeah. I was thinking of social media back at that time as being, you know, Mouse, Kelly and Griffin posters put up all over the neighborhood to let you know where the show is going to be that night.
But I think now we've seen where social media has gone and there are mediums, you know, obviously, you know, the rise of Instagram and of Facebook and of Twitter of being just, you know, mass dissemination of information. But that's what makes Clubhouse so unique. It's the first time really where audio is the uh, is the the way to interact rather than, you know, through text or through uh, through pictures. So to have, you know, conversations where people are able to get involved in the conversation and take a subject matter that interests people and say, hey, we're going to you know, be moderators in a room. The way you can uh, treat it is I kind of like to break it down to three silos. You can either do like a TED talk where you're just one person on stage as a moderator that's speaking to an audience that's interested in what you have to say. They can do it as a talk show where multiple moderators are speaking to one another to an audience. Um, the way that Elon Musk was speaking to the, uh, the CEO of Robinhood the other night for a couple hours where you know, almost 100,000 people tuned into that. And then you can do it where it's, you know, much more of a free flowing uh, exchange of ideas on a subject. So even as we're taping this right now, I was just checking my clubhouse feed. There's four or five rooms right now about cannabis, whether it's cannabis branding, whether it's cannabis cultivation, whether it's cannabis um, um, uh, regulatory and legislation. You know, whatever the subject matter is, there's people on there that have a lot to say and they're able to, uh, to share it with others. So as people are curious about a subject they can go on there and find a home and find a place where they're getting, you know, really good information brought to them by people that, uh, that have the expertise. So that side of it, you know, I don't think we've ever seen that in social media before. And I think that's a medium that's, you know, about to really take off to allow different uh, people with, with like-minded interests to get together without, you know, having to know one another until they get to know each other on, on this format. I think you're right. And you look, it's just an exciting time all the way around. It's a great new way to do it. And, you know, any way we can spread the good word on uh, the friendly herb is good with me. One other thing that uh, there, there's a lovely rumor going around. It's not a rumor because I've seen it with my own eyes. But again, uh, my, my, my inability to properly make my way through the world of social media. Um, I have seen pictures provided by my good friend Andy Greenberg of Society Jane fame out in the San Francisco Bay Area and her partner, Sharon Krinsky, um, who have really uh, made a name for themselves out there, uh, were able to send me uh, photos of the new uh, Grateful Dead branded edibles, chocolate bars and candy bars. And, uh, uh, you know, typically, as you would expect for the Grateful Dead, not just your standard, you know, chocolate and vanilla. Uh, They've got a little bit of everything in there. Uh, with beautiful artwork that's uh, really, really incredible and also exactly what you would expect to see. And what I was told is that there's some flower uh, that will be coming soon. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the chocolate bars are a collaboration between uh, the dead and Vosges chocolate, V-O-S-G-E-S. Not familiar with who they are, but uh, if uh, the dead are associating with them, I assume that they must be... Uh, uh, they must be okay. So um, this was just a matter of time before the dead dipped their toe into this market. Uh, by the next show, we'll hopefully have some more information to share with everybody. Um, but I guess, Rob, this really isn't entirely surprising, uh, except maybe only just with respect to how close in proximity it is to the recent release of uh, the uh, the Garcia line. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we've known that the the management's been sniffing around the space for quite a while. The band's certainly been looking at it. You know, there's that period where, you know, we were wondering whether the band would actually dive in uh, collectively when Mickey went, went out with his own uh, pre-rolls. But at this point, uh, you know, I have yet to see the product, um, but it does not surprise me at all that they finally hit a point where they've, you know, chosen a channel partner and said, you know, let's go out there and let's start releasing products. 
And I think it makes a great deal of sense. I mean, kind of the way, uh, you know, a, a deadhead cannabis hour makes sense as a, a broadcasting medium. I think a, a Grateful Dead cannabis brand makes sense as a, something that's going to appeal to a, a great, um, huge mass of people. So it's uh, only a question of time before it happened. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I mean, really, of all the various uh, branded strains out there, you know, and some of them are, I guess, kind of, you know, interesting and legendary. You know, Jay-Z's got a brand. Carlos has a brand. Uh, you know, Willie Nelson with his brand. But, you know, there's something about Jerry and the Dead having a brand that really, I mean, that's uh, what we were saying before. It's kind of like a peanut butter and jelly thing, right? I mean, it's just a natural fit. And, um you know, seriously, if you're a deadhead, you know, where else are you going to turn to? You know, I mean, who else who else are you going to trust in that department except, you know, hey, the Grateful Dead and here it is. And so it, that that is a lot of fun. And, um, you know, we don't we don't see it here in the Midwest and typically don't see it here for a while. So uh, with COVID, it's not likely that I'll get out to California anytime soon, necessarily. Um, so I'll have to hear from my friends out there uh, and wait for an opportunity to be able to uh, get involved. Yeah, I'd be happy to pick some up for you and send it your way. But of course, Larry, that would be illegal. So you know, we, we, we can't be doing anything like that. We would never, ever do that. Never, but I will never, 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 never. I will certainly listen to your uh, your review of it once you get your hands on it out there on the West Coast. Well, perhaps uh, I'll talk about it on my uh, Ask Me Anything About Cannabis show on Clubhouse, which I'm doing now on Sunday nights. So for anyone out there that's listening, you know, we'll find different topics to talk about all the time. So I'm not just a, a, a one-trick pony with the Grateful Dead. So, you know, definitely uh, – definitely tune in it's a it's a pretty cool group and larry obviously you're going to be coming on and jim will be coming on and dan our, our producer will certainly be coming on as well to to talk about all things cannabis uh depending on the subject matter we just try to curate it with different experts on that subject matter and try to make sure they can come on and uh an audience knows that you know they've got a place to ask uh, questions safely awesome looking forward to it. it's a lot of fun okay well jim seems to have uh signed off uh which is not unusual given that he was in transit so uh, on his behalf, uh, I will uh, say goodbye to all of our listeners. Rob, thank you again for another uh, successful show. Great to have you on board. Yeah, well, thank you so much for uh, another great show. Larry, thanks uh, to Jim Marty, and uh, thanks to, to Dan Humiston as our producer. But uh, this is Rob Hunt from Linnea Holdings uh, signing off, and uh, thanks for another great week. Okay, everyone, um, that's it for this week in the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Um, lots that we talked about, lots still to come that we're looking forward to. We hope you will continue to join us, uh, that you will follow uh, Rob and the rest of us on uh, Clubhouse and other uh, social media, and let us know what you think. In the meantime, take care of yourself, uh, stay healthy, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, 
Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.